Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy talking about the shift to a decarbonised economy. My name is David Weston and with me as always are Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hole of Agora Energy Vendor. Hi guys, how are you this week? Yeah, not bad. i just been to my, uh, for my first uh, trip um, uh, overseas, which has been very odd after more than two years. Um, I felt very guilty taking a plane, I have to admit, but uh, there was no, no way around. I had to see my colleagues in the US. Well, less exciting, but I'm also fine. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, same here. Uh, I recently had, oh, I had a little trip last week to North Wales, so I didn't have to fly anywhere, but still had to drive sort of six hours with my petrol car, which I do feel guilty about. But a very nice part of the country to visit, nonetheless. While a lot of talk has been around energy efficiency of late, today we are talking about energy sufficiency, a relatively new concept that could change the way we think about the energy transition. Our guest this week is Yamina Sahib, a lead author at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who has also held roles at the International Energy Agency and within the European Commission. Thanks for joining us today, Yamina. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. Before we dive into the discussion on energy sufficiency, can we touch on the main IPCC findings uh, in its latest reports and how they should be considered in relation to the European Union's Fit for 55 package uh, and by governments around the world for that matter? Uh, Yes, sure. So uh, one of the key uh, messages from the IPCC report is that uh, the evidence is clear, the time for action is now, and we can half emission by uh, at least, uh, we can at least half emission by 2030. And this means that uh, what is left from this decade is uh, of high importance uh, for our future in this planet. Uh, And unless there are uh, immediate and deep emission reduction across all sectors, um, 1.5 degree target uh, would be out of reach. So it's time for action and we hope that our government uh, will take seriously uh, the main findings from the IPCC report. And so how do you get to become a lead author of the IPCC report? Ah. So there is a very transparent uh, process to become uh, an IPCC author. Uh, You must have... uh, Publications in the field, you must be uh, known through your publications, through your work. This is the first requirement. And then uh, they publish a call for nomination. So you apply through your government uh, to be nominated. We have in each government, we have a focal point. Uh, You could also be nominated by um, observer organizations, like, for example, the European Commission is an observer organization. The International Energy Agency is also an observer organization. If you have more than one citizenship, you could be nominated by uh, your two governments. And uh, so it could play in uh, your advantage if you have uh, citizenship from uh, developing countries because they try to have a gender balance uh, uh, developed, north-south uh, balance, etc. 
And then uh, there is a, a bureau, which are a group of people who have been in the IPCC. They are also nominated by government, selected by government. These people review all those who, all the applications. Uh, so I think we were 800 uh, applicants, and then they select uh, only few. So in our case, we were 278 uh, authors, lead authors. And you are selected when you apply. You could you could apply to be coordinating lead author, lead author, or contributing author. Uh, and then you could apply to more than one chapter if you want. Uh, but then they do the balance based on different applications. So you may end up in uh, not your uh, favorite chapter, but it's the chapter where you have most of the publications. So that was my case because most of my publications are on buildings. Uh, but uh, I was interested more in the new chapter that was introduced in this IPCC report, which is the chapter on demand and services, chapter five. But I was uh, automatically put in buildings because most of my publications are uh, on buildings. So uh, there is no enough evidence that I can work on other uh, sectors. So I'm using the IPCC words. You need scientific evidence and you need a high agreement and a high confidence level. So they did not have, I think, enough confidence that I can move outside the building sector. That's why I was <laughs> locked again in buildings. So I'm trying to unlock myself from buildings again. <laughs> Well, Yamina, I'm impressed because I always understood, ah, you have to be academic. And I, I, when we met over the past years, we met when we worked on buildings, I perceived you as a policy person. I had no idea on the side you were still publishing. But okay, good for all of us that you ended up in the IPCC. Um, yeah. So, so, so maybe one, just one point maybe about this. My case is quite special in the IPCC, I think, because I... I am in this area between the bridge between science and policymakers. And most of the IPCC authors are academia. This, this is true. But I have enough policy reports and the IPCC. So, for example, the summary for policymakers uh, should be written by people who are uh, who bridge between science and policymaking and yeah. not by scientists. Exactly. Because scientists write in, in different way than policymakers. Uh, and I am in this area in between. Yeah. I think that's super important. I, I tried to um, uh, read quite a bit of the report, and I noticed there were about three thousand pages just in you know, the, the, the kind of technical report plus the, the, the sort of technical, I think, summary, and then the summary for policymakers. I mean, how does one write a report of that length with hundreds of different authors? I, I've been writing, writing papers you know, with a few co-authors, and that's been interesting and difficult because you have to get everybody to agree on the text. But how do you do that when you write 3,000 pages with hundreds of people? So uh, the process is extremely interesting. And uh, for me, it, uh, it it has been so far the most interesting uh, international experience from intellectual perspective. It's very challenging, but it's paper against paper. It's uh, it's not like the discussions we are used to have in Brussels. It's not opinions. So the opinion, you forget about it. So you need scientific evidence. And how to write that? We were put in chapters. And then, uh, so in each chapter, we have a coordinating lead authors. They have an important role. They facilitate the discussion between authors. So of course, we don't agree on everything. We have different backgrounds. Uh, some are from social science. Some are uh, more uh, from engineering, etc. And then the role of the coordinating authors, uh, uh, they play an 
an important role because these are the first ones to make sure that as group, in our case, we were nine lead authors. It was not a big, a big, a big group, but some groups were bigger and uh, that we reach an agreement on how to proceed, what to write in our chapter. This is the first step. And then these coordinating lead authors, they were used to have plenty of meetings. They had plenty of meetings where I have never been, which are meetings between coordinating lead authors with uh, above us, or uh, we have uh, what we call technical uh, support unit, which coordinate, which facilitate discussions among all the authors. And uh, these coordinating lead authors were meeting again with the technical support unit help and uh, to make sure that uh, the chapters go, uh, it's not about having convergence, it's about avoiding overlaps, about making sure that nothing is forgotten and things like that. So these people were having much more uh, meetings than I had in my case. So we were having legal meetings uh, at some point every week. Uh, And at some point I had the thing that I was doing only IPCC, IPCC. An important point about the IPCC, all the work you do is on voluntary basis. So if you are a consultant, if you are freelancing, this means you do this only on your free time. If you are at the university, usually it's counted in your uh, in your work for most people, but they are not paid extra people. Huh? Um, and then we have the technical support unit who reads everything, and we have the bureau who read everything. If there are inconsistencies, if there are uh, huge gaps, so the, we are notified about that, and then we have to rework. So just to give you an example, I was involved in the work on the scenarios. So for the scenarios, the scenarios is work led by Chapter 3, so it's not the chapter where I was. However, we were a group of 69 people meeting on a regular basis, and at some point we were re- meeting even twice a week to agree on the scenarios. And for for the scenarios, we uh, we launched a call, three calls, to uh, because the IPCC does not develop its own scenarios. Uh, we take scenarios that are in literature. The IPCC does not uh, develop new research. It's about assessing literature that exists, that is out there. And the same occurs for scenarios. And uh, then uh, we received 3,131 scenarios to assess. So 3,131. 3, All these scenarios are hosted by a database for scenarios at IASA in Austria. And uh, so can you imagine moving from 3,131 scenarios to select five scenarios for the report? Of course, you need a huge discussion. So many meetings we had as a group. Uh, but it was it was challenging. It was extremely interesting intellectually. It was challenging because some people are more keen with negative emissions. Some other key people are more keen to deep reduction in the demand. Um, some people are more keen uh, about um, uh, renewable share. Uh, and then, but actually, the scenarios that exist, some are. Uh, each set of scenario fits a group of us, and we needed to, at some point, to have an agreement on the, the scenarios to put uh, in uh, in the report. So that's why it was really extremely interesting. Wow, three thousand scenarios, and you have to pick five. I can't imagine what that speed like, but um, we've seen the, the result, and I think it's a really interesting uh, report. And there are some some aspects in there that um, I think we want to discuss with you today about um, also energy sufficiency, which is a Super exciting topic. And um, I think, uh, David, you, you've got, I think you prepared a question for Yamina on that, and then we can maybe dive into that a little bit more. I'd be really excited to hear from Yamina. Yeah, absolutely. Yamina, of course, you've been working on energy efficiency. You say your background's in buildings uh, more recently, but now you're championing energy sufficiency. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what that really means? What does energy sufficiency mean? 
So it is interesting that you, you, you talk about energy sufficiency, while in the report we try to insist that sufficiency is not just energy policies. So we talk about sufficiency policies and not energy sufficiency policies. But interesting, it is interesting that the, what, what you captured is energy sufficiency, because originally energy sufficiency in the climate mitigation policies was mainly perceived as energy sufficiency policies. Uh, so it's not a new concept at all. It's old. It goes to, we can find the origins of this word in the Greek. Greek civilization, of course, uh, as for any words that we use today, uh, and then, uh, but it has not. It, it was not used for sustainability and for uh, the energy transition uh, until uh, first it was used in uh, in the seventies. The king of Thailand has drafted the report that is called uh, Philosophy of Sufficient Economy, and they implemented this in nineteen ninety seven when they faced the economic crisis, uh, and actually the. The main foundations that are the way sufficiency is defined today, we can find it in this uh, in this document. Actually, you could consider it as a, a Bible, but an unknown Bible for sufficiency. And then uh, in the Western world, uh, the first person to bring sufficiency to uh, the energy debate is Wolfgang Sachs, who is a German guy. He was working for Wuppertal Institute in the past, uh, and he is the first person who uh, brought the word. And he was talking on, about energy sufficiency in his case. Uh, but for some reason, there was no uptake, uh, there was no appetite in Germany for that. And it crossed the French border. And it came to France through uh, an NGO called Nigawat. And uh, Nigawat is the first organization to develop the first scenarios based on energy sufficiency, energy efficiency, and renewable. And this is what we call the SEER framework in our uh, report. So sufficiency, efficiency, renewable. We just removed the word energy because it's not just energy. Uh, and uh, from uh, the U.S. perspective, from uh, North America, uh, the first report, and I think this is the most comprehensive one from my perspective, is uh, from uh, Thomas Prinson, uh, published in 2005. And the title of the book is The Logic of Sufficiency. And Wolfgang Sachs said when he has read this report that when you read this, you forget about efficiency. Uh, so just uh, just to give you a bit of context. And then uh, in France, um, then the concept did not fly outside France because French, they work only in French. And they, we still believe that French is the international language, unfortunately for us. Uh, so uh, the... Um, the important point is that this NGO succeeded to make sufficiency, to introduce sufficiency in the French energy transition debates. Uh, and this is how, in 2015, the French energy transition law includes the word energy sufficiency, uh, and it is based on energy sufficiency, efficiency, and renewable. However, it's not because we have the word in the, the law that we have the implementing decrees about uh, sufficiency. So we are uh, still lacking that. Uh, so to our knowledge at this stage, France is the only uh, country where we have this uh, in, the, in the text related to the energy transition. Uh, and from scientific perspective, uh, you find a lot of sufficiency measures in the literature. However, however they are not labeled as sufficiency. They are just sufficiency. They are described. The measures are, uh, they are uh, demand side measures. They are not efficiency, but demand side measures. And uh, to be able to find in the scientific databases uh, literature on sufficiency, if you just type sufficiency, it will, they will not bring too much, too many publications. But to be able to access these publications, you need to type sufficiency and 
the description of the measures that you have already identified. So you, you need to already know what sufficiency is about to be able to have these publications. But in total, we have something like uh, 360 publications, scientific publications talking about sufficiency, but not all of them mention the word sufficiency. Now there is growing literature on sufficiency. Um, and then from... Um, uh, modeling perspective, uh, the most comprehensive scenarios that we have today are those developed by the French Energy Agency, ADEM. Uh, it, it goes beyond energy and it's more uh, within this, uh, what uh, Thomas Prinson described, the logic of sufficiency. They applied sufficiency to all the sectors. And this is how uh, we did come up with this definition for the IPCC report that the sufficiency is about avoiding the demand for energy, materials, water, and, uh, and land. And it's not just about energy. And what sufficiency does is that it eliminates upfront the demand. While efficiency, it, coops, it puts cap on the consumption of everything. Uh, while efficiency is a relative improvement and inc incremental improvement so far. Could you use a specific example, Yamina, just to make it really um, kind of um, visual and for, for our listeners? Um, yeah. You know, maybe talk about buildings, which is yes, sure. your yeah. kind of core area. Yeah. So in the case of buildings and in the case of the EU, uh, we have uh, between 1990 and 2018, uh, we managed through uh, efficiency policies to reduce emissions by 30, around a little bit more than 30%. Uh, so efficiency works. Uh, and then uh, we managed also to reduce emissions through decarbonization of the supply. So these policies delivered. We are not at zero, but they, they managed to do something. However, because during the, this, uh, the last decades in, uh, in Europe, we have um, uh, encouraged through urban and land use policies, urban sprawl. So what happened is that by doing that, we increased emission. So, for example, um, sufficiency policies are about uh, prioritizing uh, multifamily buildings for new development over uh, single-family homes. Uh, and in Europe, it's not what we have done. In the last 30 years, we have done the opposite. And even through our uh, taxation policies, we have done the opposite. And this has led to increase. We have larger homes. And if you have larger homes, so this means that you have larger appliances, everything became bigger. We are a bit converging towards the U.S., why we should not be converging towards the U.S. Um, and uh, what happened is that uh, so with the, uh, the floor area per capita in the, in the EU, the average floor area per capita, uh, has been increasing because we, have, we had policies to encourage this increase instead of having policies to limit this increase uh, in the case of the EU. We are still doing better than the U.S. We are around 40 square meter per capita, where the U.S. they are around 66 square meter per capita. But given the carbon budget left, given that we need to protect land as well, not to just reduce our uh, energy use, um, so we are not as good as we should be in Europe. So this is one of the examples. If I take the EU policy instrument, then an, an EU policy instrument that is known, that, that is successful from energy efficiency perspective, is the Eco-Design Directive. So the Eco-Design Directive managed to reduce, uh, to improve the efficiency of the product. However, in the eco-design, what you have is the indicator that we use is related to uh, the efficiency and not to the energy consumption. So, for example, the fridge, the consumption, uh, the efficiency of today's fridge is higher than the fridge before we had eco-design, of course. However, the overall consumption of today's fridge is more, is more likely to be more because the fridges became bigger. Because how did they improve the efficiency? They just put more insulation and you have uh, an impo more important volume. And if you'd like to buy, if you are uh, uh, 
single uh, single person, for example, in France, and they, I guess it's the same in the whole EU. If you would like to buy a, a good fridge and you know about the um, uh, the labeling, the EU labeling, so you would uh, you know that if you have an I plus plus, I don't know how how many pluses we are, where we are with the with the pluses, but uh, let's say the best plus. Um, you know that the more pluses you have, the better should be your fridge, right? If you go to a shop to buy this fridge and uh, what you need is just a small fridge, then you will see that the small fridge does not exist in uh, in a high number of pluses. It exists only in B, for example. And then as a citizen, you will see, okay, I should buy I++ because this is, this is what I learned. But actually by buying the I++, that does not correspond to your needs, so you increase your consumption. And sufficiency is about the needs of the people, just the needs, uh, allowing people to uh, meeting people needs without overconsumption. So, Yamina, what you're saying is then that we have reached the end of the concept of energy efficiency in our policies and that we now have to do a step change that goes further. Would you say that? Yeah, it's very important, especially in the EU, because we are uh, advanced in efficiency policies, that we uh, include sufficiency policies. Because, uh, for example, an important debate in the in the by economists is related to the rebound effect. Actually, there is no rebound on the technical efficiency because technical efficiency is a reality that we can track for the product, etc. But what we call the rebound is the lack of sufficiency. Part of the rebound is the lack of sufficiency measures. And if we don't do that, this means that we cannot decarbonize our economies. So uh, for me today, um, the choice is between uh, including sufficiency, and this means uh, metamorphosis in the policy design and in uh, in the way we, uh, in the climate framework that we have, uh, or uh, reliance in uh, technologies that we don't have. This is, if I look at the scenarios, so scenarios that reduces the demand that does not need negative emissions are scenarios with uh, sufficiency measures and scenarios without sufficiency, uh, they all need negative emissions, which we don't Mm. have. We don't have technologies for that. So this is where we are. And I do think, I believe and I dream that the EU will be the first place where we will have sufficiency policies. Well, if I may, I saw some bits of what I think would fit under sufficiency already in the EU. I remember when the last time the EU did the prime scenarios, um, for the first time they included a scenario with behavioral change, for example, reduced meat consumption. And I recall that that at the time was already, oh, we we talk about this. That was not to everyone's liking. Um, and for example, uh, I saw a tweet of uh, Franz Timmermans just now where he basically, he was commenting on the cup where there's a lot of discussion going on and he pointed to 20% of food waste. So I guess these are these are elements yeah. of that. And, uh, and then you saw a lot after the pandemic, you saw a lot of companies. I saw something about Brussels-based companies who all decided to move into smaller office buildings, like exactly. all the... So I think these are elements of sufficiency. Um, And repurposing existing buildings. So in the case of the EU, in the case of France and Germany, most likely we don't need to build more square meters, at least not the figures that uh, industry is saying we need to build. What we need to do is to uh, repurpose existing square meters that are already built. Because in sufficiency, you need to look beyond uh, the energy in the use phase. You look also material, land, etc. You look other parameters. So reusing, repurposing the existing buildings to to 
today's need. So today's need, we are all from home. I guess I am from home. I am working from home. But ideally is to have uh, just an office uh, downstairs that I could uh, rent whenever I need this office. Then I'm not disturbed by my kid, etc. You see? And this this does not exist everywhere. And this is the future for some of us. Of course, not everyone will be teleworking. And maybe just two points. So you mentioned behavior change. In uh, chapter five, which is about the demand. So what literature brings to us, because behavior change has been introduced in uh, EU policies quite early and especially after the financial crisis of 2008 and 9. Uh, sufficiency is, so what literature shows is that to have sustainable behavior change of individuals, you need first to put in place the infrastructure needed for this behavior change to occur and to, to be sustainable. Good illustration for that is the Corona biking uh, lines that we have. So, uh, cities have changed completely because uh, if you have safe biking lines, people will bike. If you don't have safe biking lines, people will not bike. It's just it's as simple as that. You put motorways, people will get, will have cars. You put incentives to buy cars, to buy electric cars, even if they are electric, uh, people will buy electric cars. Uh, but if you put incentives to have um, uh, more of a uh, different type of mobility, so you will have this mobility. So basically... Our behavior is not just a decision that we take as free f- based on our freedom, etc., but it's a decision that is taken based on the offer that we have from infrastructure perspective. And this moves the debate of climate policies from individuals, from product to the bigger picture where, where the impact is much more important and uh, more sustainable, especially in regions like Europe, where we have reached uh, uh, efficiency became ma- mainstream for us. So we don't need, we are not anymore in the 60s. Yamina, do you think the uh, COVID pandemic has sort of helped to uh, crystallize these ideas and and make them a bit more widely uh, accepted or widely uh, discussed? So uh, at this stage, literature on sufficiency is mainly Western literature and I would say French-German literature. Uh, so, uh, and I think the debate from the information, the data we have is mainly in, is more advanced in France and uh, Germany, uh, not in the rest of the world. We cannot really extrapolate. However, uh, emerging economies see in uh, sufficiency, uh, this is what I realized during the approval session of the summary for policymakers of the IPCC, uh, see in the sufficiency a way to uh, ensure uh, an equal distribution of the remaining carbon budget. Uh, because uh, if I take the EU, our climate neutrality target is not fair climate neutrality target compared to developing countries. So we do this as if the EU exists alone in this planet and we set our targets based on that. If you look at the remaining carbon budget, uh, today it's at uh, 300 gigatons uh, at 83% chance. Uh, And uh, last year, in 2019, uh, our global emissions were 59 gigatons. So if you divide the two, this means we have five years. So the EU should be carbon climate neutral now. And uh, for developing countries, because what sufficiency is about, is about delivering uh, human well-being for all within planetary boundaries. And this would question our climate target, for example. So I expect, I have no evidence that some of emerging economies would use sufficiency concept in future uh, COP negotiations. And that's why it was accepted, actually. Because some people consider this as controversial, but actually it's not controversial if you think it from global perspective and you include the equity consideration uh, there. 
I, I want to just ask you as a hard question about sufficiency, and that's um, you know in the in the kind of politics around climate change, um, a lot of the criticism that has been put to people who've called for climate action and uh, decarbonization has been that this is essentially an agenda of depriving people you know, of, of services which they want. And um, the kind of way out um, that you described was we focus on efficiency, which essentially allows us to do the same things, but more efficiently and therefore reduce emissions. What you're saying is that sufficiency means more than that. Uh, you know, it means to actually go without things that we don't need. Um, but how how do you see um, that sort of panning out in the broader discussion around climate change, reducing emissions, and the politics around that, where you have a very strong um, agenda from, from, from some people who will just say anything that's to do with emissions is about restricting our freedoms and interfering in people's lives? You know, how would you sort of respond to these kinds of people who already attack climate policy, even if it's just about renewables and efficiency, if you now come with a sufficiency agenda, which to me seems um, a lot harder to, to convey, at least where we, you know, in the current political climate that we're in. Yeah, so uh, all these narratives have been built. They did not exist all the time. You see the narratives of, uh, for example, being uh, owner of your flat or your house is new. It goes back to the 70s to Margaret Thatcher. It did not exist before. And if you look at in the history of most of the families, that was not there. Uh, and in the same way, uh, these narratives about uh, more consumption, about ownership of everything, uh, anytime, whatever you need, you get it right away, etc. The speed at which we work, we live, etc. This narrative that had, has been built, so we could build another narrative that is uh, about uh, sustaining life in the planet. So for me... Uh, the sufficiency uh, policies, I think, I think there, there will be an uptake because we are facing climate crisis that is serious climate crisis. Look what's going on in India now, temperature in India, and this could happen as well in Europe. And uh, just look what happened last year in Germany, in Belgium, etc. They are all climate-related events. And we will have in the future more of this climate-related event. And we need to, uh, be, uh, to, um, to explain, to educate that all this could be avoided so you don't want to uh, have your house to be flooded. You don't want to hear that people are dying because of uh, the flood. Why you could avoid this flood by just, uh, it does not, because sufficiency is not about, uh, that's why it's described as uh, uh, avoiding the demand while providing well-being for all. It's a question of well-being. Are you uh, more free uh, because you need uh, to spend every day one hour to go to your office and one hour to come back in your car, you are not more free. Are you happier with that? No, people are not happy with that. And now we need to highlight that this is not the happiness. So we need to build new narratives. So the, 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 it's time, I think, for the people who work on, who work on sufficiency uh, to uh, team up with marketing and communication people to create these new narratives and to work with international organizations like the OECD. So the OECD, for example, was one of the first international organizations to develop well-being framework. Uh, it, they did not go that far in their well-being framework, the way I described it, did not go into sufficiency. But actually, the well-being framework developed by the OECD was, from my perspective, the first step towards this change. But uh, uh, it was done in very incremental way. And today, we don't have any more time for incremental uh, changes. We need to go very fast. Thank you.
Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Yeah, I just wonder if uh, if it helps to introduce this term, because, for example, I even remember recently Claude Turmes saying it's very difficult in the current circumstances to even talk energy efficiency. So um, I just wonder if uh, with this concept you'll get somewhere, because, yeah, I th- there's always this, you know, re- I remember Gerhard Schröder, what he said, um, what he said when Volkswagen Canteen introduced a veggie day and he got furious and he said, these workers, they need their currywurst. And how do you counter that? So I, I think the current situation, the climate crisis combined to the energy crisis for us, the Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, are actually uh, the two um two main levers to push for this transformation. So if you look at, uh, because one thing I did not say about the sufficiency concept. So uh, uh, when we had the oil crisis in the 70s, uh, the IA was established and the recommendations from the IA are very similar. People are very um, um, are very happy with the IA 10 points to reduce oil demand. But these 10 points are very similar to those developed in the 70s. And if you look at these 10 points, uh, except it's, it's a an update. This is what I said. It's an update to IA colleague. It's an update of what was done in the 70s. There is nothing new. An update in terms of, uh, for example, there is a recommendation about uh, teleworking, encouraging teleworking. It was not possible in the 70s because we did not have uh, the digital uh, tools that we have today. So this is new. Or for example, shifting to electric vehicles. We did not have uh, that many electric vehicles, so that's why it was not there. But it was shifting to efficient vehicles, I, I think, in the past. The most interesting part is that when you look at the 10 IA points, then you realize that nine out of 10 are sufficiency measures, but they are not labeled as sufficiency sufficiency measures. The ideal case is to have the IA saying that these are sufficiency. So sufficiency has always been there. And the first time sufficiency was brought in reality to policymakers was during the oil crisis, and it did work. And that's why with the the Ukraine crisis, I think the, the energy crisis resulting from the war, I see it as an opportunity to push for more uh, demand um, demand reduction measures, which combine sufficiency and more efficient uh, and speed up more ambitious policies from efficiency perspective as well. Because when I say we are uh, we are good in efficiency, we are not as ambitious as we should be. Yeah? So uh, it's this combination. And today it's more acceptable because today we, if tomorrow, if next winter, I hope it's not going to happen. If next winter we are freezing in our homes, so you will see that people will understand that. Okay, if uh, you have better designed homes, if you don't need car to go to work, to go to school, etc., uh, that's much better for for your life, actually. But it's it's narrative that we need to create. So I uh, I disagree uh, with uh, our friend Claude Thiams because uh, I think he should not miss the opportunity as Minister of Energy in his country to push for more demand reduction. I mean, a good a good example of sufficiency, I guess, um, to an extent, is the COVID pandemic, where we've seen major uh, change in how people uh, travel. Well, they didn't really travel very much at all. And 
um, how they work. Um, and a lot of people said, actually, that yeah, of course, this was a yeah, this wasn't a great thing to happen to humanity, but there were elements in it where people said they want to hang on to that. You know, they want to travel less. They want to be doing more homeworking. Um, they want to stay more local. And uh, is I mean, is it, has this happened? Have you seen any evidence um, as part of your IPCC work that? Uh, the pandemic had an effect um, that is lasting longer than you know, just that kind of couple of years when there were restrictions in place. Have people sort of changed their ways of doing things? And I'm asking the question because I still see a lot of virtual events, for example, even though um, we now can travel. But there seems to be some some shift, uh, not a 100 percent shift, but there seems to be some shift uh, in areas like conferences uh, or homeworking. Um, I, I also read that uh, yeah, in, in London, um, many companies are downscaling because people are working from home more. Um, the same should be the case in other uh, European cities. So I just wonder whether there's any sort of scientific evidence that already shows what the impact of the pandemic could be. So the literature about uh, the impact of the pandemic on sustainability is quite new, emerging, but it goes in this direction that uh, people already, those who have written on, the, the, there are some sections about the pandemic and the impact of pandemics on the climate mitigation policies. Uh, and uh, the literature uh, shows that uh, there will be a part of this change that has been imposed to us by the, by the pandemic is going to be sustainable, but we need policies to to make it sustainable in the future. So if you have policies that, that oblige you, uh, it's today the case, people were teleworking and now they are obliged in several companies to come at least two days per week to, to, to work. So people will have to do it, so they will do it. But if you have more facilit facilitating more this change, so it will happen, the change will happen. And the, the, the other, uh, and maybe the most, uh, maybe the, the area where there is... Uh, the highest number of literature about the impact of the pandemic is about biking and the fact that now in cities where we have uh, biking, safe biking lines, people bike and they don't want to shift again even to public transport. They would like to stay uh, biking because uh, they realize that it's good for health, it's good for themselves. And uh, personally, actually, when I use my bike, even uh, it's good for my mental health. I can free up my mind. Uh, it's not just about uh, breathing, even if in Paris, you, the air you breathe is not always of good quality at this stage because we still have cars. Um, but you see, so this change is going to happen. And I think the digitalization is going to help because it allows to make this change uh, happening. And we all appreciate, you see, we are in different locations now, but we, we are able to have this podcast. In the past, we would have uh, had to plan to meet most likely in Brussels. And it would have taken us uh, uh, one day of our time, while today it is taking us only the time that we are spending uh, in this. We are more effective, actually. And this is why it's going to change. But then you, you face resistance. So I'm trying to find out how many square meters that are constructed and not used in France and Germany. And of course, uh, the construction industry, those, uh, the real estate, are trying to hide that. And they say it's impossible to have this figure. And uh, it's complicated to repurpose building, but nothing is, nothing is impossible, actually. Uh, so we will have this resistance from those making income or profit from the current business model, from carbon-intensive business models. But it's not specific to efficiency. Yeah, exactly. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the same for efficiency and for any other uh, policy. So um, I agree. I think there's a part of sufficiency where people all of a sudden realize, wow, that's actually increasing my, uh, my quality of life. But I don't think that will be sufficient exactly. for yeah. sufficiency, yeah. if I may. I think there is a part which will be the less acceptable part. And um, I do you agree that 
this will not be working on I, I understood you that way, you know, by counting on voluntary no. actions and by pushing the responsibility on the individual. It will have to be brought with with regulation, exactly. like, for example, say, on embodied carbon yeah. in a building or something. Yeah, Do you yeah. agree? And actually, literature shows that uh, the, the contribution of behavior is around the 5% of emission reduction between now and 2050. And this 5%, even this 5%, to have it, of course, each... each uh, each 1% count, each percentage count in reducing emissions. But this 5% to get it and to make sure that it will stay there, we need to have in place the infrastructure and the policies to make sure that it will stay. And if we don't have the policies, it's not going to happen. Do we need to have uh, better sort of uh, labeling and better communication? We talked about the communication of getting the idea out there, but better sort of labeling on on. Um uh, appliances on the cars, you know, to show the consumers exactly what their impact is having and how they they could improve their uh, behavior. Now, for example, if you look at cars or appliances, so instead of showing only the efficiency indicator, we should show the consumption indicator. And then you see that uh, a heavier car will consume more than, uh, than a car that is uh, lighter or a bigger fridge will consume more. And then based on your needs, instead of buying bigger fridge because it's A++, uh, if you need a smaller one, uh, then you would buy smaller one. Uh, and this will put also pressure on industry uh, to improve the efficiency uh, of the smallest one, which is not what they have done today. You see? So it's not enough to have labels. It's uh, it's really changing the policies. So, for example, eco-design should be uh, next to eco-design, either included in eco-design or next to eco-design. We need another instrument that requires um, uh, requirements uh, on the cap on the consumption in addition to the efficiency uh, labeling. Today, the label is based on efficiency. So the same for homes. If you look at in the EU, uh, so EPPD, given that uh, we have been constructing uh, buildings as well during the last decades, so if you look at the final energy demand per square meter, you see that it went down. But the total energy consumption in buildings per, per, per unit of building went up because we increased the number of uh, square meters. But it also, in our case, we had the structural societal changes because uh, today's families are very different from yesterday's families. Uh, so you have uh, single parents uh, and you have, uh, uh, we are aging population. So we all have in our uh, network, uh, our parents living alone and the loan in big houses or big flats. Uh, while we, when we were living with our parents, maybe it was even too small for us. Uh, so these are the changes that we need to uh, to take into account as well. I mean, for me, frankly, it's just there are two things. I think it's just uh, the infra building the infrastructure to allow people a net zero lifestyle. And I think what I would like to have also emphasized in the communication is that, like to come back to my currywurst and the people in the canteen. Um, I read again, 10% of the global population, the 10% richest, create 50% of the CO2 emissions. So yeah. sufficiency is mostly about more equality, right? It's a, you have to communicate. That doesn't mean exactly. that you cannot fly into your holiday once a year, no? That, I, no? that has to be important. And then it's the obligation for the governments to, you know, to to change how we build and build more for that families can live together or something like that. 
Exactly. And sufficiency is a constraint on this, uh, the richest one, the highest polluters, not on the majority. That's why I think sufficiency could fly if we communicate well about it, because the majority is not uh, the one who is responsible of, for the climate crisis, especially when you look at it at global level. But even in our countries, um, I, I don't know, there are only few French people who fly uh, for their holidays. Not all the French people go, not even they all go to holidays, but actually we all need holidays. So if we were not all flying, polluting, and if we have better distribution of income, etc., then we would all enjoy holidays. And this is how you build a democratic society and a happy society. And sufficiency, this is what it brings, because it brings the equity issue that was not there with technological improvement. So in the end, in the end yeah, I mean, maybe it's not an energy discussion you said already it is not you say it's bigger it's about using other things but i would say it's a bit like what i didn't like about the energy poverty discussion that all of a sudden the, the energy policy was, was responsible for social for what should be social and economic policy so i i'm not sure if if sufficiency and the discussion would be the right way to go but Maybe, you know, it, taking it from academic literature and then applying it, you can also adapt it, I think. Yeah. Well, I think uh, based on the, the, all the literature I had to review for the IPCC, uh, we are used to focus in climate mitigation policies on energy policies because the most uh, three quarters, more than three quarters of the emissions come from the energy sector are energy related. But actually uh, to reduce emissions, you need to go beyond energy. Yeah. If we focus, so what we have done so far was not the right uh, thing to do. Because that's why we, are, we have not been successful. This is my conclusion. And that's why we need to go beyond energy energy sector, even if this is the sector that is the most responsible for emissions. Yeah. Because, But this sector is responsible for emissions because we did not put in place the right infrastructure. So I'll just give you an example with buildings. So if you look at... Uh, emissions from buildings uh, from supply side perspective. If, if you look at the emissions from supply side perspective, so the global emissions, the share of global emissions of buildings would be 5.6% in 2019. If then you look at two emissions, uh, you include uh, direct and indirect emissions. So you uh, you take the, uh, the emissions from uh, heat and electricity consumed in buildings, you add them to buildings, then you move from 5.6% to 16% share of global emissions. So you see, and then if you add to this, uh, we and we, we had data only from the IA for uh, the use of cement and steel in buildings, not for all embedded emissions, then uh, building emissions, global emissions from buildings would represent 21% out of global emissions. Mm -hmm. So you see, you move, if you look at two emissions just from um, supply side perspective, so you you see that buildings, uh, uh, you you don't you should not focus on buildings at all because it's the, uh, it has the lowest share. But if you look at two, uh, two emissions from demand perspective, and then you see that you cannot neglect a sector that represents at least one-fifth of global emissions, you see? So mm -hmm. it's a diff different perspective, and it's a shift in the mindset, moving to demand. And that's why I would highly recommend you read Chapter 5 on the demand. Beyond buildings, you read Chapter 5 on the demand. Well, I would also read. hope that those that are drafting at the moment the communication in the European Commission on Repower, which is supposed to come out in two weeks, that they would also read this because I have a feeling that we are again, that there's a temptation to use again the old logic looking for exactly. more supply. Would yeah. you agree? Well, 
Excuse me. The French have are the the French have the presidency at the moment. You say they know about sufficiency and they have applied it. So, what would you recommend should be implemented to go straight to sufficiency in this report and apply demand side logic? So uh, we had the opportunity to present the findings of the, the the report to the minister of the ecologic transition. But you know we are in transition. Our government is in transition, and. Uh, what we said is that the priority is to make this shift actually during the French president. This is what France could bring to the EU and to the world, given that uh, for whatever reason, uh, France is advanced in this, uh, from this perspective. Um, the good thing is that when, um, uh, uh, for the, um, the election, the president, and uh, even when he got elected, when he was candidate already, he mentioned sufficiency, but he mentioned sufficiency. I was so happy. We say sobriété in French. And then right after he mentioned efficiency, there was, so I think he confuses both. Uh, so he <laughs> needs a note to explain <laughs> the difference between the two. But the word, the important thing is that the word exists and we are used to hear this word. And then when he got elected, so he promised now we should have this tomorrow, I think, uh, to have prime minister in charge of ecological uh, planning. And he again mentioned the word sufficiency there. Uh, it does not mean for him what is uh, in the scientific literature, of course. So there is an extra work to be done. Uh, but I do believe that this is, if France could bring something new, uh, the new French enlightenment to the EU and the world uh, could be actually to bring uh, the demand side and to bring uh, this uh, the sufficiency concept. But I agree with you. I checked the Repower EU communication and I just got shocked because it's all supply side. It's a, it's really, it's like a document from uh, the previous century, the, the last century. It's not at all. They are not modern at all. So if you could say a word to your colleagues at the commission, uh, Michaela. <laughs> sometimes I think it's good that you are out and sometimes, oh, if she would have been in, I could have sent her a text message and to say, Michaela, please try to put some words on demand. Well, yeah, I mean, I still invite you to send me text messages. <laughs> um, Mina, what about the idea of, say, like a carbon budget for consumers? Uh, would that help people be more uh, conscious of how they use energy? So there was an attempt in the UK. Maybe Jan knows more about it uh, in the past and it failed. Um I, I think if there is, I personally think if there is a carbon budget, there should not be a possibility to trade like in the EU ETS. Because if you trade, what will happen is that the richest ones will buy the budget of the poorest ones. So this is going to be disaster from equity perspective. Uh, so if we could have a carbon budget without trading, and then you put, because in this case, you put cap on overconsumption of this one or 10%, depends on the country. And then these are those polluting. And usually these people are used as a role model because the role model is to see someone who has a big house and SUV, etc. So if you change the role model is uh, someone who is uh, uh, biking, using public transport and uh, having our leaders uh, uh, behaving in sufficient and efficient way, this will change the world. So it depends how it is implemented, I think. But in the UK, they had an attempt and it was a failure. It, it, it did not pass. The bill did not pass. It was David Miliband um, who championed it and it got a lot of traction for a while and there was a lot of research. And actually one of my former colleagues at Oxford University Tina Fawcett did a lot of work on this, um, so it was it yeah it was it was certainly advancing conceptually, but I think politically it was a hard sell um, because uh, again it comes back I think to this point I made earlier that um, yeah if if not communicated right people will perceive um, 
you know, things like personal carbon trading or carbon allowance as an interference in their private lives, which um, politicians should stay away from. And th I think that is the challenge, isn't it, that we we have to achieve this huge change in all of these areas and take people with us because if we don't, then we're not going to succeed. So I think there's a real communication uh, challenge. And I'm just uh, not making a note here, maybe for a future podcast, we should get someone on who is a communications expert on climate policy, because I think it's it's really important. And it's a, it's a mis-piece. And you know, I include myself here. We often talk about these things from a very sort of technocratic, techno-economic yeah. uh, perspective. But really, this is about um, much more than that. So I think we should cover this in a future episode. Yeah, I agree with you. We should leave the scene to the uh, communication experts. You know, I did an experience with my student at Sciences Po Paris, uh, Institute of Political Science in Paris. So uh, uh, my lecture was about uh, uh, climate risks, mitigation and identification of climate risks. And uh, I asked my student to read the three SPM reports, Summary for Policymakers from the IPCC report. And I was helping them in understanding, in reading, etc., with basic concept, etc. And uh, I told them for the last, uh, for the exam, actually, uh, you draft 500 words about what the IPCC should improve. And then uh, you turn this into podcasts, videos or whatever. And it was just amazing. They got the main point. We are not good in communicating. We are so bad. Yeah. yeah. And then... I'm glad you're bringing it up, Yamina, because I thought, can I tell her as one of the lead authors of the, of the summary, it's still very technical. And I had a look at it. And it's 64 pages. Do you know any policymaker who can sit down for... For no. uh, for uh, to read sixty four pages no. and able to understand exactly. able no. to understand the sixty four pages with plenty of uh, technical language. So my students proposed things. Uh, they did not uh, label it as policy brief, but what we call in Brussels policy brief. Just and they uh, they they made several proposals. One uh, two pages explaining in clear words. So instead of saying net anthropogenic uh, CO two emissions, saying that uh, <laughs> emissions and that's it. Why do I need to have net negative, blah, 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 just emissions? And then um, about yeah. the temperature, temperature increase. I don't remember the exact sentence in the IPC report. So he put the sentence and he said, who can understand this sentence? And uh, things like that. And I think students did yeah. come up with uh, several proposals that are most of them related to communication. The, I had only three proposals related to the substance. Basically, you would have to do three killer chart, slides or charts to present to the people who at the moment work on Ukraine crisis. Exactly. Put yourself in their mindset and present them three charts. Exactly. What, you know, and because I, I still think this summary, it's basically, it's a, it's the summary of the summary. It's not a political communication yet. Oh, I had there. one student who said, uh, uh, when the summary for policymakers is not for policymakers. That was the title of her essay. And another one who said, uh, 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 who could read uh, um, how 64 pages could be considered as a summary. Because, of course, we go from 3,000 pages to 64. This is a summary uh, and things like that. And it was really great, actually, what they have done. I, I hope uh, I will manage to make this work uh, publicly available and people can see it because they have been very creative. And, you know, they are young. They are uh, aware of the climate crisis and they are anxious about the climate crisis because it's about uh, their future. Um, and they are just so creative. And they had to read the three. I obliged them to read the three summary for policymakers. So it was a torture. So I tortured my student, but then they, come up, they did come up with some good proposals that I hope the IPCC will take on board. 
but not just the IPCC, even for us, huh? uh, in what we do in our daily basis, we need to take these things on board, these recommendations from students on board. Nope. Uh, okay. Uh, Yamina, uh, before we go then, uh, one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energy landscape look like or what's the, the global landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time? Um, so what, what, what's your vision of the energy future? My vision? No more fossil fuels. No more consumption that kills people. <laughs> Not just about fossil fuels. No more consumption that kills people. Because I think the most beautiful thing that we have is the planet. If we kill, if we destroy our home, then it does not make sense. All what we do does not make sense for me. Uh, how feasible is that? It is feasible if we have a, a climate action now. If we put enough pressure on our policymakers, it is feasible because uh, the polluting uh, countries and the polluting people are fortunately living in big democracies. That's why I believe it's feasible. So it's up to us to do it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Yamina. Really insightful, really interesting discussion. I think we could have gone for another uh, hour talking about sufficiency and the communication issue. And I say, hopefully we'll maybe address that in a, in a future podcast uh, down the line. Um, finally, then, just quickly go around the table to see what uh, caught my eye this week. Uh, Jan, what caught your eye? Well, um, I um, was interested in a piece of news that I was already anticipating would be coming at some point, but it was the, the formal announcement of the German government um, after decades of supporting renewables with uh, a levy on electricity to now move that from electricity bills into general taxation. Um, and I had a lot of very controversial comments when I posted it um, on social media with some people strongly supporting it and some people really hating it. Um, I mean, I personally felt um, actually it was a decision that was made for various reasons um, at the right time. I mean, people's electricity bills are skyrocketing. I think some people now paying sort of 40, 45 um, euro cents per kilowatt hour um, in Germany. So I think that's that's helping. But also, um, if we want to encourage people to switch away from fossil fuels and use renewable electricity, if you put all the climate policy costs on electricity, clearly that is not the right way, whereas fossil fuels get a free ride. So I think the German initiative is actually quite positive, and I was very interested in it. But yeah, that, that was the main thing that um, I wanted to point out here on the podcast. Uh, Michaela, uh, what caught your eye this week? Well, I'm, I was counting all the billions, the billions we spent uh, for is not the 46 billions that uh, the EU has spent uh, since the war started. Uh, and and transfer to Russia, whether in rubles or euros is another discussion. Um, and it's really so much money that I realized this is half the money that the buildings, you know, the clean buildings advocates say we would need per year to transform our building stock. And that was always perceived to be massive. We are halfway there only with that. Uh, and then someone from Bruegel uh, basically uh, saying that only the support for the you know, the consumption support because of the high prices that countries like Germany and Spain spent 20 to 30 billion since September just for this support, which um, which I think is really massive and could, have, could be invested into more, in, in a more intelligent fashion, ideally, if we take this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Uh, Yamina, what caught your eye this week? It was the announcement of the French president that we will have prime minister in charge of ecological uh, planification. Uh, I look forward to see who he will select 
and ho I hope we will have the right person because this would solve uh, an important part, an important issue in the climate uh, policies, which is related to governance. So because in the past we had the Minister of Ecological Transition uh, competing with other all other sectors. So of course the transition was always mm -hmm. uh, losing uh, in a battle. Uh, that's why we had weak policies. And I hope this will spread uh, over uh, EU countries. Do you think uh, Macron's re-election could uh, spur a bit more um, energy transition action within France? I think so, because uh, he has nothing to lose this time. It's his second and last term. Uh, he's young, uh, so he will be here uh, unless he's, uh, he got sick. So he, will be, he should be here in 2050. And uh, yeah, so uh, and he's a smart guy. He does not want to be uh, in uh, living in uh, 52 uh, degrees in Paris or whatever, wherever in France. Um, so I, I do believe at this stage that he acknowledged that uh, the, the the transition is important and that what he did, what he has done before, was not enough and sometimes worked against this transformation. Uh, I do believe that he acknowledged that. Actually, he said that he, he said it. I think during the campaign. Um, then the next step for us is we are a presidential regime, so it's different from Germany. Uh, so we'll see who will be which majority we'll have at the parliament. It seems that the um, the left is organizing itself today to win, and it's uh, left green. Uh, if we have left green and we have progressist uh, government in Germany. So maybe this time will be the first time for years uh, since uh, for several decades that we will have, if, if we manage to have a progressive uh, parliament here, majority, we'll have progressive uh, governments in the two biggest EU countries. And in this case, we could move uh, the EU in the right direction. The two countries could do it. We have the power, we have the, we have the expertise, we have everything. What is lacking is just a bit of courage. Absolutely, completely agree there. And I'm sure we could do uh, a whole episode on, on France as well and, and its uh, its views on uh, and the energy transition and its action there. Uh, just finally from me then, um, it's a new, uh, what caught my eye was a new uh, version of a gravity-based foundation for offshore wind. Um, and obviously floating wind is going to be, contribute a huge, uh, significant amount to offshore wind's uh, future, uh, especially in Europe, uh, but also much, much uh, further abroad, especially in the US and and, and Asia. So um, really interesting to see this new um, gravity-based foundation design coming out uh, of Finland, I think it is, um, but or Norway. But um, I think part of the, the uh, issue facing the floating industry is finding something that works and having something that is consistent and um standardized across uh, across the sector uh, in order for it to really take off so that was uh, really really uh, what caught my eye this week um so but thank you so much for your time yamina that's sadly all we have time for this week uh my thanks to yamina jan and michaela if you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast you can reach us at our twitter accounts i'm on at dave w underscore foresight yamina at Y-S-A-H-E-B. Uh, Yuli, uh, um, Jan, sorry. At Jan Rosenau. And Michaela. At Citizen Saint One. Uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all very soon.